In the last couple of messages, we've seen that the attitude of our hearts is what God is really looking for as we give to the poor and as we pray. It's kind of practical aspects of Christian life. There's so little to be gained by a public show in either of these things. In fact, the only thing that, the only reward that these things bring is a temporary praise of men. People might think, well, that person has a great vocabulary or a great knowledge when they stand up and make an eloquent prayer. But there's no re eternal reward at all if your motivation is to be seen of men. The way for us to test our motives in praying and giving is to do these things secretly, without fanfare, with only God as our audience. Pastor Kevin has already discussed our motives in giving and praying, so we won't go into much detail right now. But I'd like to read everything that pertains to prayer leading up to this today's passage. So we'll start in Matthew 6, verse 5. And then we will focus on the Lord's Prayer itself. So if you would like to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our de debts as we forgive as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither Will your father forgive your trespasses? <clears throat> now I'll just note here at the beginning that there is a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, but it seems to take place at a different time and place than this teaching does. And it begins with Jesus' disciples coming to him and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he teaches them a pattern of prayer which is very similar to what we find here in Matthew 6. It would appear that the lesson about prayer though simple, was one the disciples needed Jesus to repeat. The lesson was simple, but not easy. Today I would like us to put ourselves in the Matthew 6 context, where Jesus is in the middle of this discourse on the kingdom, on the law, and now on prayer, and his disciples are gathered around him. He is teaching them lessons about the kingdom, he has carefully exegeted God's perfect standard of righteousness in keeping the law and, is, and his standard for practical aspects of believers' lives like giving and praying. I think it is coming to be very clear that unless there is intervention, divine intervention, and if we are left to our own resolve to do these things perfectly, we're in big trouble. 
We cannot pray in the flesh without sinning. We cannot attain God's standard through our own goodness or resolve. Jesus has just laid down the foundation, the instruction of the law, culminating in the end goal of perfection. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is problematic because Scripture itself attests in several places that there is none righteous, no, not even one, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it also says that believers are justified freely by His grace, that Christ Jesus has made atonement for our sin, that by His knowledge He shall justify many, and that He is the one who has purchased men for God and washed us in His own blood. As we come to the Lord's Prayer, or this model prayer, Jesus has just finished exposing false motives in prayer. He tells his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees who pray for show and to get the adulation of men. Don't be like that. And don't use a whole lot of repeated words. Don't think that you've got to say exactly things exactly right so that God can understand you. Or that you have to somehow elevate your language and make it lofty enough and theological enough that God's ear will tune into your prayer. Don't think that you have to repeat things. God gets it the first time. Prayer is neither a pagan mantra nor a performance. Now Jesus has just instructed his disciples to pray in secret, in their closet, as it were. If you have the King James, that's what it says. But as he begins to pray, He's certainly not praying in a closet. There are at least 12 men gathered around him, and then perhaps multitudes a little further off. He is not literally praying in a closet, but he is modeling for his hearers the attitude of humility and intimacy where it is just him and God, where it is just you and God. Have you ever wondered why we close our eyes when we pray? I don't think there's any scripture that commands us to do that. We only have one scripture where the, the publican cannot even lift his eyes to heaven. I think we close our eyes because it's an instinctive way of shutting out the world, separating ourselves from others, so that we may be alone with God, even in a public setting. Of course, intimacy with the Father is no issue, was no issue for Jesus, because he is one with the Father. But as Christians, as the Holy Spirit lives in us and bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, making intercession for us with groaning too deep for words, we too experience unity with the Father. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would come to be one with him and one with the Father. As Jesus demonstrates prayer, I think there's something in his demeanor that just leaves everyone around him behind and enters into that closet and closes the door, even though he's in front of perhaps thousands of people. The Lord's Prayer is not a long, eloquent prayer. Other places in Scripture, Jesus prays for a much longer time. The longest prayer we have is in John chapter 17. But what he does here is to simply focus on the very essence of prayer, the basic elements that compose and legitimize prayer. 
Last week we learned that prayer is essentially about God. It is easy to think that prayer is about our bringing our wish list to God. It's all about us. But Jesus says here in verse 8, Do not be like those Gentiles who think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That doesn't mean you can't ask God for things. What it really means is pray with your heart, pray with your mind. Think about what you are saying and to whom you are saying it. The important thing is to come to God and simply commune with Him. It's not about getting God's attention. It's about knowing that His attention never wavers. And with that knowledge, coming to Him in honesty and humility. Along these lines, we're going to analyze this beautiful pattern prayer and identify the basic elements that constitute the essence of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In this first line, we are impressed with the glory, with the majesty of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is unlike any other name. Your name is separated from and above every other name. You are in heaven. You are above all. And yet, at the same time, in all your glory, in all your majesty, you are our Father. We have personal, childlike, awestruck intimacy with the One who is in heaven, the Creator of heaven and earth, the One who is glorious, and the One whose name is incomparable. In most Jewish circles today, the Lord's name is never pronounced aloud. It is too holy, too precious for words. This is the God that Jesus says we are to call Abba, Father. So then, the Lord's Prayer begins with the expression of God's glory, of His otherness. You'll find this awestruck wonder in every real prayer. We acknowledge and glorify the one to whom we pray. The next line says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is all about the sovereignty of God. God is king. Your kingdom come, your will be done is not a simple hopeful request. It's not, Lord, I'm asking you that your kingdom will come and that your will be done because this might not happen if I don't pray for it. No, this is a statement of fact. Your kingdom shall come. Your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, here's a, a, an irony or perhaps a mystery. Jesus speaks of the coming kingdom, doesn't he? Your kingdom come. And he anticipates the kingdom where he will reign, where wickedness will be finally suppressed, where all the messianic promises will come to fruition, and the true Israel, composed of all saints, both Jew and Gentile, will blossom like a bud. Isaiah summarizes a little bit of this by saying, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. 
It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a completely different world than we see right now. All these prophetic visions are the promise of a coming kingdom. And yet Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 17, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Present tense. But Jesus meant that he, the king, was in their midst. Jesus is already king. He is king to everyone who has submitted to his lordship and everyone who has come to him in repentance and faith for salvation and forgiveness of sins. We read earlier in Revelation chapter 5 that both the Father and the Lamb, the Son, receive glory as king because they are of the same essence. They are separate persons, Father and Son, but the Son is fully God and the Father is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. The assertion here in our text, your kingdom come, your will be done, is this. You rule God. You rule now, and you will rule when Jesus returns. What you say goes. When we pray, we humbly acknowledge this fact. God rules. The recognition of God's sovereignty is an indispensable component of our prayers. You really see this in the prayer we read in Daniel chapter 9 and many other prayers. Not for our sake, Lord, but for your sake. Some people say, well, you should never ever pray if it be your will when you come to God, but rather claim authority and hold God to what they call laws of faith. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, command God to do your bidding. You maybe come across this theology. I think it's self-evident it would be foolish even to go before an earthly king and demand anything. No, when you come before the king of kings and lord of lords, you request, you pray, acknowledge that he is lord, he is king, and that your puny will cannot manipulate him, nor your eloquent words. You have no right to demand anything from God. God is sovereign, and he is free to do as he pleases, as he wills, and he will accomplish his will. The book of Matthew is very much concerned with the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew uniquely refers to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom exists now is largely a covert or hidden kingdom which comes in ways that cannot be observed. But the day is coming when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your kingdom come, as Jesus prays, acknowledges both of these realities, the kingdom that is here now, where God rules, and the kingdom that is to come, when the kingdom of the world is become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We have seen two elements of prayer so far, God's glory and God's sovereignty. Let's read on. Give us this day our daily bread. This speaks of God's grace. God is a God who gives. 
and in his prayer he is represent he, uh, in this prayer he is presented as the giver of daily bread just a couple of chapters back Jesus was attempt, was tempted by the devil and the devil said if you are the son of god command these stones to be made bread and Jesus response to him was man does not live by bread alone but by every word of god in John chapter 4 verse 31 he says i have food to eat that you do not know about then he goes on to explain that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work in the lord's prayer there is obviously a literal request for daily bread we rely on god for to feed us physically but it is significant that Jesus often uses bread as a metaphor for grace. He even calls himself the bread of life. There is an implicit understanding of God's grace in the request for daily bread. An Old Testament example would be the manna that fell from heaven and was there every morning, day in and day out. Every day there was just enough. The people were not allowed to collect more than they needed except on the day before the Sabbath when they could gather twice as much and it wouldn't go bad. The people were not allowed to hoard a store of manna. Instead, they were compelled to wait on the Lord, on His grace, day by day. The point is that God provided. God continually provided that for them in a most gracious way. God is a giving God, and we must acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. Jesus himself acknowledged this as a man. He said, I can only do the things that I see my Father doing. He made himself subject as a man to the will of his Father, even though he possessed all the power, all the authority of the universe. <coughs> Excuse me. He voluntarily laid aside his independent exercise of his divine attributes and submitted to his Father so that he could model for us dependency on the Father for everything. Coming to him again and again in prayer. You wonder, why did Jesus have to pray? Coming to him for his daily bread, rather than turning the stones into bread and making a way for himself. So now we have three key elements of prayer. We have God's glory, we have his sovereignty, we have his grace. We continue now to the next line of the prayer and forgive us our debts as we forgive as we have forgiven our debtors you can tell that i'm conditioned in the king james version of this prayer as most of us are also as we have forgiven our debtors <coughs> this is mercy god is merciful Thank you. God forgives even when we do not deserve forgiveness. In fact, we never deserve forgiveness. God's forgiveness is always an act of mercy. Jesus builds and complements this understanding by connecting God's mercy with our mercy toward others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The point here is not that I had better hurry up and forgive that person, otherwise God won't forgive me. We don't forgive in order to be forgiven. 
like a kind of quid pro quo, I do this, you do that. Again, Jesus takes us to the heart of the matter, and that is the attitude of our hearts as we pray. A person who truly prays, a person who is heard by God, is a person who forgives because God has worked repentance in his heart and forgiven him. God is also producing within him fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember John the Baptist's message to the Pharisees, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? By their own righteousness, they could never escape God's wrath. But when God works in a person's heart, and when that fruit of repentance is produced, it is a mark of regeneration, a mark of new life. Even the way Jesus presents this forgiveness as a completed action, he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors, suggests that forgiveness of others is at the very baseline of Christianity. It's something that is foundational. Christians are people who forgive. It doesn't mean we don't struggle to forgive at times, but we are people who forgive. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's one of our trademarks, or you could say one of our birthmarks. The next element of prayer Jesus includes is that of God's salvation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In his high priestly prayer, in John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, speaking of his disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. Deliver us from evil. And as Jesus here teaches his disciples to pray, he acknowledges the reality that evil exists in this world right now. This is not the kingdom to come. This is the kingdom that exists now, and it is very much, as I said, a closet kingdom. The Lord knows those that are His, and the church as God sees it is very different than the church as I see it, or the church as you see it, or as the world sees it. I suspect it's much, much smaller than the church the world sees. God knows every heart. He knows every thought and every intention of every heart. Hebrews uh, 4 says. He knows the hearts of each of his early he knew the hearts of each of his early disciples, that ragtag little band of saints who would turn the world upside down, preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he knows the hearts of everyone who believed or who has believed their message. He knows that temptation is an everyday fact of life. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Paraphrasing, keep us away from alluring distractions. Don't allow us to go down those paths where we will be easily led astray. An aspect of salvation is deliverance. We have no power to deliver ourselves from evil. This world bows to a king called the devil, the evil one, the adversary. Everyone who loves this world is under his authority, and the only way to get out from under his thumb is deliverance and that by God. The only way to overcome temptation is through the mercy and grace 
of God. Jesus was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. And he overcame temptation, not just in the desert, not just after fasting for those 40 days and nights and then having Satan come at him with all guns blazing, but in Gethsemane. I'm not saying Jesus ever participated in sin. That's not what the temptation means. It's a testing. But you can, see, you can bet that the devil was working on him right up until the very end. Right up until his head was crushed as the nails were pounded and as Jesus cried out, it is finished. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he overcame temptation. He brought about deliverance from evil through his intimacy and oneness with the Father, through his perfection and his obedience to the Father. He is our hope for deliverance from evil. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's interesting that Jesus knew where people's thoughts would go as he presented this prayer because he goes on to explain a little bit more about that little sliver, forgive as you have also forgiven others. So he goes on to take a little bit more about forgiveness so that people don't misinterpret his point. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Like so many other sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a bit of a bombshell. It's another way of saying, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's another way of saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. We forgive ourselves all the time. We should also forgive our neighbors. And this is God's standard. As with all of God's standards, we fall short. But through faith in Christ, through his imputed righteousness, and through new hearts that seek the kingdom of God, we are being transformed day by day to the image of Christ. Part of that image is forgiveness of those who trespass against us. If you look through the prayers in Scripture, you will be able to detect not always all of these elements, but definitely some of these elements in every prayer. These elements that Jesus identifies in this little pattern prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer. You can see Jesus following his own pattern even in John chapter 17. The Lord's Prayer is not intended to be some magical mantra that we recite whenever we need something from God. But it does encompass the essence of prayer. True prayer is precious to God. True prayer is incense in golden bowls before the throne in heaven. God wants us to be a praying church. The first outward sign that Saul of Tarsus had been converted was this. People saw him and they said, Behold, he prays. That's what distinguished him from the old Paul. He prays, not the ostentatious wordsmithing of the Pharisees and the senseless babbling of the Gentiles, but the childlike cry 
of a redeemed heart to its glorious, sovereign, gracious, and merciful Savior. This is also the sign that identifies a healthy church. I struggle a lot with prayer. In a previous church, I had a season where I thought my prayer life was really pretty good. One of the deacons was in a very different place, struggling with prayer, struggling with faith, and with trusting God when he didn't seem to be answering. Maybe you've been there and felt that. You know, I think I judged him at that point. I think I looked down on him and thought, what's wrong with you? I realize now that I was wrong. I was prideful, pharisaical. Prayer is difficult. It is something that seems so otherworldly at times, so sublime that it's sometimes hard to get there, to, to think that you're actually communicating with God. The disciples were undoubtedly praying men before they met Jesus. But when they observed his prayers, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We all have so much to learn. Prayer is difficult, but not because you need a theology, a theology degree to, to do it. It is difficult because it is all about God, and we tend to make it all about ourselves, and it's very difficult to get ourselves out of the way. The challenge is to get over ourselves, and to realize how small we are, and how great God is. Prayer is difficult, but I think it becomes easier with practice. And that entering the throne room of the Almighty, though it is never commonplace, though it is never routine, can become something joyful, something we greatly anticipate. I would encourage all of us, brothers and sisters, to pursue the real essence of prayer. To come to God humbly, in adoration, in confession, in thanksgiving, and supplication, and see what amazing things are in store. I know God is answering prayer. Even as we have just heard the wonderful news of Sandy's mom entering the kingdom of God this week. You know, I had just uh, typed this line. And I got a bing on my phone and it was Jason. And he said, our family has been praying for mom's salvation for years. That prayer was answered. And that we need to be reminded that God answers prayers. Even those tiny little ones. And also great big ones. When our motives are right, when God is at the center of our prayers, we can ask and know that God will hear and he will answer. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for these words that came to us through your Son, Jesus. We thank you that when his disciples desired to know how to pray, he did not turn them away. And we we know that we do need to be taught to pray. We need to look to this example that you've given us. 
Help us, Lord, to, even as we sometimes uh, publicly recite this prayer, to think about all that it entails, all of the attributes of God that we should keep in mind as we pray. We thank you that you are a, a loving God who delights in his children, who gives us good and perfect gifts, who gives us suitable gifts. You are a gracious God, and the, gracious, the greatest gift of all is a gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, through the work, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that even now, as we pray, that his blood makes intercession for us and speaks a better word than the blood of Abel and we come boldly before your, your throne of grace. Help us to be encouraged by these words today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do a closing hymn. Um, what a friend we have in Jesus. It's number, what? You don't know? Uh, one